Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. Now, if you'd like to receive a weekly email about past and upcoming interviews, you can subscribe to our Inpatient Minute newsletter on the homepage or follow us there on Facebook or Twitter. And please share these interviews with your myeloma friends. For today's show, we are very fortunate to have with us one of the, mo- the, one of the foremost world leaders in multiple myeloma, Dr. Antonio Palumbo. So welcome, Dr. Palumbo. Well, thank you thank very you. much for the invitation. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Let me introduce you before we get started. Dr. Antonio Palumbo received his medical degree from the University of Torino, Italy, where he served his residency in internal medicine and held a fellowship in hematology oncology. Before his current position as chief of the myeloma unit, of the Department of Oncology section of hematology at the University of Torino. Dr. Palumbo was a research associate at the Wistar Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to membership in numerous professional organizations, including the Italian Society of Hematology, Italian Society of Experimental Hematology, European Society of Hematology, American Society of Hematology, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, Dr. Palumbo is on the board of directors of the International Myeloma Society. He's authored more than 150 publications in peer-reviewed journals, as well as numerous abstracts and several textbook chapters. He specializes in malignant hematology and medical oncology and has clinical and research interests in plasma cell dicrasia. Just recently, Dr. Palumbo was awarded the Robert A. Kyle Lifetime Award for 2014 from the International Myeloma Foundation for many, many years of service and discovery for myeloma patients. So Dr. Palumbo, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much for your invitation. Well, Dr. Palumbo, one of the big reasons that we would love to talk to you, we have many reasons to talk to you, um, as one of the world leaders in myeloma, but um, we are very fascinated about your paper, your ASCO paper in 2000, this, of this year, about continuous maintenance therapy. So before we start with that, can you please give us a brief introduction about the Italian Myeloma Network and a little background about that network? Uh, yes, uh, basically almost, uh, I would say even 15, 20 years ago, uh, we started uh, with uh, the Italian cooperative uh, groups uh, called GMEMA and uh, we put together several uh, hematologic institutions throughout the country and this allowed us uh, to start uh, and uh, with time have more and more clinical trials uh, asking several questions 
Just recently, the Italian group joined with some other European country to build up the European myeloma networks that hopefully will try to even improve our current trial capability in order to make this study faster and probably better done. Well, I very much appreciate the collaboration that happens in Europe. It seems to be a very collaborative group in the way that you're working together. Well, on your the um, the continuous maintenance therapy, let's talk about that for a little a little bit. Um, I know you had before this ASCO paper, you had papers in 2012 and in November of 2013 with lenalidomide talking about some of the rationale behind that. Can you kind of give us some background about the history of the rationale behind um, the idea of continuous maintenance therapy? Well, basically, this idea started uh, many years ago when we, we had a, a randomized study so comparing a treatment that was given continuously until progression versus a treatment that was given only for a few months. And the curves were very impressive because basically the major differentiation in terms of outcome basically was shown when treatment was stopped. So while patients were on treatment, the curves were, were very well balanced and they were starting to diverge dramatically when in one group where we stopped treatment after a few months and the other groups the, the treatment was given continuously. So we started to think about the need of continuous treatment uh, uh, basically from this uh, randomized study and basically the two important concepts were that if in myeloma you do have residual disease after induction, you might need a continuous therapy to keep this residual disease under control. If you stop the treatment, that disease will come up quite importantly and quite soon. So this was uh, uh, basically the concept uh, that uh, keep us uh, evaluating this approach. Okay, and do you want to share what you learned from what was in the ASCO paper? Because um, the specifics, it looked to me that the survival, the progression-free survival with lenalidomide maintenance was 42.7 months compared to 17 and a half, which is a huge difference. Well, uh, uh, the ASCO paper was addressing, uh, 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 yes, this concept uh, together with uh, the idea of a uh, resistant relapse. Uh, try to explain uh, the issue. Uh, you know, in oncology today, we are not, not in, in myeloma specifically, but generally speaking, we do consider that treatment A is better than treatment B 
when the advance is a few months. With the continuous treatment, the difference in terms of remission duration has been constantly in basically all studies around one year. So the first major uh, concept is that uh, the continuous treatment is prolonging remission duration at the median, as a median value of one year. After that, the question becomes, well, okay, but uh, if you prolong, you prolong very much uh, the remission duration, and this among aspects uh, is a consensus that uh, no one is uh, discussing. But the, the next question was, uh, well, if you prolong so much the remission, then the relapse may be quite aggressive. And you might lose in the subsequent remission what you gain in the first remission. So in, in this study that we presented at ASCO, we basically not only evaluate the length of first remission, but we also evaluate the length of subsequent second remission. So we pull together the first and the second remission in the attempt to evaluate if the relapse after continuous treatment was shortening very much the subsequent second remission. And once again, in a randomized study, the results show that when you pull together the first and second remission, the, the advantage is still around one year when you compare first and second remission receiving continuous treatment versus first and second remission receiving just the short-term treatment. So the uh, conclusion is that uh, the uh, deliver of a continuous treatment is not significantly shortening the second remission due to a more aggressive relapse. And in I hope it's clear because it was uh -huh. clear, okay, because the concept is not always that simple to explain. So you were basically trying to see if the first and second, if it extended both first and second relapse, I mean remission times. Yeah. And that it had a year advantage. Um, and then can you repeat what you said about the aggressiveness? Because I had a some follow-up questions about just the aggressiveness. When it comes back the well, second time... Mm -hmm. oh, well, uh, more, more resistant, more aggressive and resistant because uh, the, the, one of the, the questions uh, uh, being raised is that, okay, you prolong uh, uh, the first remission of one year, but then you shorten the second remission of one year. At the end, there is no advantage. This was the, the, the assumption, or if you want, the question, because if you give continuous treatment, uh, 
the relapse will occur under treatment, under therapy, and at that point, that relapse could be uh, much more resistant and aggressive. So the year you gain in the first uh, uh, remission may be lost uh, during the second remission. This is actually not true. We could show that this year of uh, uh, remission advantage was kept also after the second remission. So you are prolonging overall survival, and that was one of your second questions, right? So uh, that, that's become even a, a more complicated question because the overall survival is, uh, uh, let's say, in two-thirds of the studies uh, is uh, prolonged. So you do see prolongation of first remission in 100% of the study. You see prolongation of, of first plus second remission in uh, uh, up today 100% of the study. And you see uh, overall survival prolongation, not in 100% of the study, but in, uh, let's say, two-thirds, 70% of the studies. How this is possible? There are uh, several explanations for this. First of all, uh, today myeloma is not one or, or two remissions, probably four, five, six different remissions. So the use of different drugs at subsequent relapse may alter uh, the overall survival. And this is uh, one of the reasons why in some studies we couldn't show consistently overall survival advantage. But the, the other one is also toxicity and the ability uh, to receive uh, a, an effective salvage regimen. And this may also uh, change uh, the overall survival outcome. That's the reason why we wanted to get specifically involved in first and second remission, to get close to the time period of the continuous treatment. Because if you go, you know, in your days, uh, we only had one, two, maximum three remission duration. So it was very easy to translate uh, the efficacy that was coming from the first remission to overall survival. Today, that fortunately, we have four, five, six different remission durations. The overall survival might become, from this point of view, a more uh, confusing end point because so many other treatments, so many other toxicities, so many uh, different uh, comorbidities, complications may occur during those uh, four, fifth, sixth remission duration that uh, this might, might uh, I'm not saying uh, cancel, but create more confusion in the strict uh, definition of uh, remission duration and overall survival. Well, if I hear what you're saying right, it just sounds like it's, it might be a blessing and a curse at the same time, a blessing to patients that the um, overall survival is longer now than with the newer drugs, but more complicated to determine what is actually creating that extended remission. And then running studies, it seems like it's a challenge because 
you have to have a much longer study to get the result that you want. Uh, not only that, uh, but what my concept is that, uh, you know, when uh, in a given disease uh, you have uh, six different remission durations, six different uh, treatments, six different uh, risk of toxicity uh, during those uh, six remission duration, it's very complicated uh, mm -hmm. to make a, a strict correlation between uh, the efficacy of the uh, treatment given during the first remission and the overall survival because everything is uh, getting mixed up by different risks that you might, risk, might have, positive or negative, uh, during the other five uh, treatment lines uh, and five remission duration. That's the reason why we try to pull together what we call PFS1 and PFS2 because to clearly evaluate the efficacy of the given treatment, and this was evaluated by remission duration, and eventually the risk of a negative effect that is coming just after that treatment, not after six of those treatments. Mm -hmm. Okay, well that makes a lot of sense that it is very complicated to determine and narrow it down. Oh, go ahead. Survival becomes more and more complicated to evaluate because uh, more we have, the more lines of therapy, more everything can be confounded by subsequent treatments. Right, so the efficacy and, and then the impact of the other treatments on your system and maybe on your myeloma. Mm -hmm, exactly. Now, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that one of the studies was looking at patients who had um, some residual disease. So can we talk for a minute about who continuous maintenance might be appropriate for? Um, and maybe we start by talking about um, the, the remission status of patients. Is it better for, is it appropriate for all patients who have some residual? Um, is it appropriate for patients who have a complete remission or a stringent complete remission? Could you, could you inform us about that? That's a very important issue and I would say also something that needs some clarification. Uh, the outcome of the disease is the balance uh, between uh, two, I would say, reality. One reality is how much the disease is sensitive to therapy, and more the disease is sensitive to therapy, more the uh, residual tumor is uh, reduced. So no questions. that with a given treatment, if you reach a CR or even a stringent CR, this is much better than achieving a PR only, but a partial response only. But on the other hand, the other half of the moon is the biology of the disease. Because if you achieve a complete response, but the biology of the disease is very aggressive, the relapse might come very soon. On the other hand, 
if you are not very sensitive to treatment and you only reach a partial response, but the biology of disease is very uh, is not very aggressive, and therefore the relapse will come after five years. Uh, this is, of course, a positive issue. So you have always to balance achievement of a good response of the CR with the biology of the disease. And this is, of course, uh, uh, to somehow uh, not easy to do. Uh, and uh, the real end point is the remission duration. I would say that the length of remission duration is much more important with the amount of response you might achieve after therapy. If you achieve a complete response, uh, the, the duration of the response is much more important than the achievement of a CR or of a stringent CR. But, generally speaking, I do agree that achieving CR is generally better than PR, but this must be balanced with the duration of response that might change from one subject to another, and this is mainly given by uh, how much the disease is aggressive and therefore how much quick is the relapse. On the other hand, the advantage of the continuous treatment is basically one, that with continuous treatment you might further increase the response achieved after induction and therefore prolonging the duration of therapy might uh, increase the, uh, the, 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 the response, improve the response rate. On the other hand, as we were discussing before, the continuous treatment might delay the relapse because is certainly uh, controlling uh, the cells that might regrow. Okay, so there are so many questions <laughs> out of what you just said. So I know you're trying to balance between the biology of the disease and then the remission response. So some practical examples. If you had someone who had aggressive therapy and then hit a, uh, like, let's say, a, strategic, a stringent remission, has maybe one high-risk feature, maybe not a deletion 17, but something else. How do you determine if the length of the remission duration is the most important, and they just came off therapy, um, would you suggest that, or do you wait to see kind of the length of their remission response? That's kind of not continuous therapy. Um, I, can you give us some examples, maybe, for different types of patients? What you might do in those no, situations? I think I think I think I don't know if I understood correctly, but I think we have to clear out two concepts. First of all, uh, if we achieve a stringent, complete uh, response in in a given patient. Uh, we still have residual disease. This is not complete response and eradication of the tumor. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, doesn't matter if we reach uh, partial response, complete response, stringent complete response, even uh, minimal residual disease negative situation. We always have residual disease. So we have to get rid of the concept uh, that if I reach complete response, I'm cured because uh, I'm rid, uh, I get rid of the tumor. If I'm, uh, I reach a partial response, uh, I'm not because I still have tumor. It's always, there is always a residual tumor. So from this point of view, uh, you see the advantage of continuous treatment is always present because you always have residual tumors. From a practical point of view, what we do in our clinic, eh, according to the results of the phase three study, we do decide that the given therapy is the best available treatment for that given patient and we give it to all patients. We are not changing treatment according to uh, risk factors or achievement of response. We deliver what uh, the phase three studies define as best available therapy. And on that evidence, we deliver the same treatment uh, to all patients. Mm-hmm. And is that Revlimid right now, lenalidomide? Uh, currently, I would say as a continuous treatment, uh, we actually have uh, Revlimid uh, as continuous treatment, but also protosome inhibitor as continuous treatment today are advantage, do represent an advantage over uh, fixed duration of therapy. Today, the evidence coming from the phase three studies are both from units and from protosome inhibitor that the continuous treatment significantly prolongs remission duration of approximately one year. We do not have a comparison limits versus protosome inhibitors, and from this point of view, we cannot say that A is better than B or B is better than A. We can only say that the continuous treatment is better than fixed duration therapy. So at this time, you don't know if something like bortezomib would be better than lenalidomide for as a choice. That's what you're Absolutely saying? Absolutely, yes. No, we cannot say it because we do not have any head-to-head comparison of this, those two approaches. We, we know that from uh, phase three studies, uh, both uh, bortezomib and lenalidomide gave an advantage of approximately one year in two independent uh, uh, randomized studies. Do you think any of the risk factors would come into play? Because I know that sometimes they say bortezomib might have an impact on 414 patients over other types of patients. Would you take that into consideration when choosing a continuous maintenance drug? Uh, No, I don't. But I can tell you what... uh, you know, I should also say that depending on on the reimbursement uh, opportunity, that are not always they, they don't always give us the opportunity to give the best treatment. We do prefer protosome inhibitor as induction, 
because this is a way to maximize as much as possible the response and to increase as much as possible the complete response because today only combination including protosome inhibitor could give without autologous transplantation a CR opportunity of approximately 30%. So we do prefer as induction protosome inhibitors followed by lenalidomide as maintenance for two reasons. First, because we basically alternate the protosome with the image and second, uh, to take advantage of the oral administration of image that is certainly uh, a plus uh, when you uh, are planning a, a treatment that could be uh, longer than two years. Oh, and I think that's a great choice because you want to have the patients stay out of the clinic as much as possible, if possible. Absolutely, yes, and uh, as I was saying, our, our approach is uh, to take advantage of protosome inhibitors that are certainly uh, more effective than images in terms of uh, increase uh, the complete response rate and on the other hand to take advantage of the image uh, for a continuous therapy and uh, uh, the oral administration of the image that allows us to keep patients out of the clinic for a longer period of time. Okay, now when, when we talk about continuous maintenance therapy, can you share your opinion on dosage of that therapy? How do you maintain the best response um, with the fewest amount of side effect? What is your strategy to do that? Uh, that's, uh, that's something, uh, thank you for the question, because I think that is probably one of the most uh, important uh, questions. Uh, this is a personal opinion, it's not given by any evidence, but my personal opinion is that uh, uh, maintenance and continuous therapy should be given provided they are not causing any toxicity. So my number one rule is uh, continuous treatment uh, should be delivered if all toxicities are minimal. And our policy is the moment we do see some toxicity, we eventually reduce or stop the therapy. We want to see those toxicity going back to a minimal toxicity, what we call a grade one toxicities. And at that point, we do restart at probably lower dose. So we Basically, our, our golden rule is to keep patients on treatment with the dose that is not causing any toxicity. If we do see hematologic toxicities, we reduce the dose from 10 milligrams of lenalidomide to even 5, and eventually we stop because we do believe that the quality of life and the absence of toxicity are even more important than the efficacy in terms of uh, prolonging as much as possible the remission duration. And here there is also, if you want, a more not very easy concept, but the concept is if you keep going 
on a continuous treatment, you end up and you start to see some toxicities, and you keep going, you will create a major toxicity that will end up in a clear discontinuation. So the two, the two ideas are to minimize, to reduce the dose, to keep patient on treatment as long as possible. But on the other hand, to completely avoid major toxicity because this has a major impact on quality of life from one side, but also on the risk of discontinuing therapy to excessive toxicities. And a follow-up question, what specifically are you looking for when you look at toxicities? Are you looking for kidney function or what specifically are you looking at? Well, first of all, uh, I would say hematologic toxicity, especially for more, also for both uh, prostheosome inhibitor and image are probably the most relevant. Infection is the second most relevant, but once again, when we do the workout, we look at the hematologic condition, the creatinine, the renal function. Everything is not working properly is a good reason to reduce uh, the dose. And this is especially important uh, you mentioned the renal function for the elderly because uh, the, the, the renal function is physiologically reduced in the elderly population and therefore a reduced dose of especially lenalidomide is almost mandatory in this subject because the, the renal function cannot be 100% conserved and therefore especially in those patients the dose reduction will um, be important not only for the kidney, kidney, but also for the hematologic conditions. And do you have any concerns about patients becoming refractory to a continuous maintenance drug? Yeah, this is a concern. Uh, this is also happening, unfortunately. Uh, this is uh, one of the major reasons why we run the study pulling together the first remission with the subsequent remission in order to evaluate the if the resistance was creating a major damage for the subsequent remission. The data are showing that this is not um, in the practice so true that some patients do acquire a clear resistance to treatment, but they are probably less than 20%. So the majority of patients are not acquiring a major resistance to therapy. And to some extent, when we balance the risk of resistance that is certainly occurring in 15-20% of patients versus the advantage you give uh, keeping the tumor under control with continuous treatment, there is much more advantage in keeping the tumor under control than the disadvantage coming from the occurrence of uh, resistant relapse. And it seems that you're always trying to make take that balance. The maximum um, effective therapy and the minimum 
um, downside yeah. for the patients. Yeah. Absolutely. I think this is uh, the, the key issue. Uh, minimize the treatment uh, to, if you want, max, and uh, minimize the toxicity to maximize the treatment. And uh, I think this is probably rule number one. So I have a question about newer therapies. With some newer um, therapies, because there are so many different types now, all these different inhibitors and vaccines, are there other therapies that could be used as continuous maintenance therapy, like let's say, for example, a vaccine. It might be too early for that. Um, that doesn't have in, any side effects, but might help boost the immune system and, and keep it going. Um, that, in your mind, could any of those be used as continuous maintenance therapy now or in the future? Uh, we hope for the future. Today, there are not there. There are no evidence that vaccine can be used as uh, uh, continuous therapy. Uh, we do need uh, some clinical studies uh, to show that there is a clear uh, efficacy because vaccine could, could mean so many things, so many approaches, and one's like difference in one approach over the other could make an enormous difference. But the main uh, message today is uh, we do not have any clinical evidence of efficacy of vaccine in myeloma. That doesn't mean that tomorrow this evidence will come. My, my, my concern is that the treatment should be delivered outside the clinical trial, because in a clinical trial is a completely different story, but outside of a clinical trial when we do have evidence of efficacy. Today, there are some clinical trials evaluating vaccines, so if someone would like to test the efficacy of a vaccine, should be included in a clinical study that will allow us to evaluate if this approach is effective or not, but shouldn't use outside a clinical study because today we do not have any evidence and we, on the other hand, need the evidence to show that vaccines are uh, effective. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, have, they are a, a great... Uh, hope for the future, but once again, we first need evidence and then we can use it. Well, maybe that's just my hopeful dream world of treatment without any side effects, but it is very positive what you said with 80% of patients not becoming refractory to the therapy that's being used today, so that's very encouraging. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I was, mm-hmm. okay, go ahead. No, no that's okay. So in looking at this, I know studies are difficult or a challenge because you have to do a study for a certain time period to find a result. And I know researchers don't want to do a study that's eight or 10 years long because it takes that long to be able to announce your results. So can you take the data that you've already gathered and continue with that same patient group or cohort to extend the study to see um, as you give continuous therapy 
the results past, you know, maybe a three or five year period? Is that possible? Or do you? Uh, yeah, yes, I think uh, I think that's that's another excellent consideration because we have to, you know, uh, you have to balance the time and the need of of have an answer not in 10 years because it will be too long uh, with uh, the need of evidence. Today I think this is the work that we should do all together, patient, physician and probably also authorities, uh, try to shorten the period to get the signal. Uh, from this point of view, I'm very much in favor to find the early signal that can allow us to say we do have a, an evidence that this is effective. And that signal will then be confirmed with longer follow-up. So today, we still need the randomized study to clearly show signal. We should probably start using early signal, such as PFS. PFS may come in less than three years. There's a signal, even response rate, if the difference is very important, can come much less than two years after a study. So to have marker that in two to three years time period can give us an early signal of evidence. This is, in my opinion, quite important and feasible today. Is less uh, slightly more conservative from this point of view to immediately translate the experience of a study such as a phase two study without uh, a control arm um, done on a very small cohort of patients, such as 20, 30 patients, to immediately translate these uh, uh, evidence in clinical practice. Because in the past, uh, you know, many, you know, some mistakes have been done with this approach. So in my opinion, we do need phase three. We do need the early biomarker or signal to have an answer in two to three years. And in your opinion, what else would shorten up this whole cycle of discovery for you? Is it more patient involvement? Is it structuring the clinical trials in different ways? Or, or just with your experience, you have so much experience. Uh, in your opinion, what would shorten this up so we can discover um, new, new thoughts more quickly? Uh, I, I would say more um, certainly the ability to open and close those studies in, in a shorter period of time. I think that's probably is, uh, the, the clue issue and probably a better collaboration between investigators and authorities to design and to speed up all the bureaucratic procedures because today to some extent uh, if we in a world we need standards uh, you know if you have a new drug you should know immediately which is your standard study to do to have the approval 
and uh, you should be immediately approved uh, the drive if you reach that endpoint. So you don't have to go through discussion, uh, things, uh, things should be more standard from a bureaucratic point of view and uh, from a recruitment point of view. I think those are the two clue issues. If uh, authorities will have standards, they can certainly reduce uh, the time required for approval. If uh, investigators have uh, better facilities, could probably reduce uh, the time required for recruitment. And this might, to some extent, reduce between 30 and 50 percent of the mm-hmm. time today required to, to get approval of a given drug. Well, that's a huge time frame. It's, that's, we're doubling the pace if we could eliminate that. And do you have oh. a hard time recruiting for your studies? I know that Europe is different than the United States. Um, not, uh, no, well, but we are in a very good, you know, position because, right. you know, here is no, but generally speaking, uh, another, another message is that uh, the difficulties in recruitment is mainly due by the fact, uh, this is, uh, if I can, from a European perspective, another very important message for patients. The, the, the difficulties in recruitment is because, because uh, patients are treated in so small different uh, institutions. And to some extent, this is uh, a major issue, not only for recruitment, but mainly for patients. Patients should remember the number one uh, quality issue is the number of myeloma patients that a given physician sees every year. Myeloma is a rare disease. So if patients are treated by physicians who sees two, three, four patients per year, this is quality A. But if a physician sees uh, 150 myeloma patients per year. This is quality B, and this is completely different from A. So one issue is that, especially for rare disease, I know sometimes it's not so easy for for geographical reasons, but uh, the treatment should be driven by physicians who see at least 100 patients newly patient, new patient per year, because experience makes the quality on top of everything. And of course, if you start having a center who see more than 100 newly diagnosed patients per year, also the recruitment will be increased because you will have more concentration. Right. And to me as a patient, that what you just said is just a no-brainer. My first oncologist that I saw, I asked him how many patients he had. He said, maybe five. And then I went to um, two other specialists, and at their facilities, they were treating between four and 600 myeloma patients a year. And um, it was very clear the expertise difference in, in those, um, even though, you know, he was a good oncologist. He did not specialize in myeloma. And to me, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. So I completely Absolutely. agree. 
I think I think this is the number one message to give to patients. Always remember, in every type of uh, disease, what makes the difference is the number and uh, uh, of patients that a given physician is seeing and therefore the, the experience they might have. So even for surgery, for everything, the number one issue is the number of uh, procedures or, or new patients you might see per year that will make a great difference. Well, yeah, it's a great message. So I have so many other questions to ask you, but I know you need to um, end at our stop time, and there are several callers. So if you have a question, I'm going to open it up for caller questions. If you have a question for Dr. Palumbo, you can call 347-637-2631. Press 1 on your keypad. And we will start with our first caller question. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, am I the caller? You. Yep, you're live. Hi. Okay. This is, I didn't know if I was one or not. Um, hi, Jenny. Thanks for doing this wonderful interview, and thank you, Dr. Palumbo, for um, being a part of this interview. This is Susie Rose, and my question, um, we are talking about continuous treatment, and we're looking at the basic, the immune modulator drug for continuous therapy. Do you have a perspective? I know this was not your trial, but do you have a perspective on using the proteasome inhibitors and, you know, putting that in the framework of what we were talking about um, with Jenny and when you, uh, refractory this in terms of will patients become refractory if they're continued on uh, proteasome inhibitor. And I'm thinking of that for patients who are in the high risk or cytogenetic, they have the translocations or deletion 17P or uh, amplification of 1Q. So I'm really asking your perspective more so than, because I know it wasn't part of your trial. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, that's a very complicated question. I'll try to give my, my best answer. Um, we ran two different studies. One study was uh, LAN maintenance versus no maintenance. The other study was another independent study and was uh, uh, inhibitors maintenance versus no maintenance. Uh, if you look at those two independent studies, uh, um, no question that the, the, the advantage was fairly similar in both studies. It was around one year. Good prognosis patient did better than high-risk patient in both studies. So the, 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 the issue of... Uh, um, high risk uh, was uh, what was high risk uh, patient did uh, worse uh, both with LAN than with uh, prothesis inhibitors. Having said that, uh, I'm, uh, I'm 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 in favor without evidence. This is a personal opinion. Certainly, probably to use prothesis inhibitors in high risk because. Uh, has been shown that proteasome inhibitors might be more beneficial than imid in high-risk patients, and using this evidence, together with the evidence 
that in those two, in, in, that we, together with the no evidence, because we do not have any evidence to show uh, head-to-head comparison of, of image with proteasome inhibitor, I will be probably in favor of using a, a, a proteasome inhibitors in high-risk patients. In terms um, of resistance, uh, I, I, do, I, I actually do not know. I would not expect uh, a high risk of resistance from one drug in comparison to the other, but honestly speaking, I do not know. Yeah, I asked that question because of the data that um, Dr. Lonio has now out of Winship where he's he, well, I think it was more of a, a retrospective analysis where he looked at keeping patients on RVD after they were uh, in the high-risk population, and he's seen a substantial increase following those patients in their survival. So that was kind of what prompted my question. I realize there's not a lot of evidence, but I appreciate your expertise and giving your clinical perspective. So thank you. No, thank you very much. Uh, very nice. Thank you. Uh, I completely agree with your comment because, uh, you know, from uh, generally speaking, more the disease is aggressive, uh, a more intense treatment, such as VRD, will be, of course, uh, more beneficial, uh, provided it's tolerated. So I would completely agree with you and Dr. Lonier, provided the treatment you are given is tolerated, because otherwise you have to reduce the dose intensity. Yeah, that was the other concern that I had in terms of when we're doing continuous treatment like that, um, are we going to do it at the same pace and the same, are we going to, you know, when you're doing like induction or when you're doing consolidation, typically it's twice a week, three times, for three weeks uh, in a row. Well, would we continue that or will we do once a week or would we you know you do maybe one year you get it twice a week and then the following year you go to once a week times three weeks I don't know and that's you know one of the questions because I I think your core point is we have to sustain the MRD if we've reached it or continue to drive it down um, as much, you know, with the steady pressure of the drug. So I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Should the dose intensity, I know with lenalidomide, they take you from 25 milligrams down to 10 or 5 milligrams for maintenance. Would you think we would do it with a low? Because that's the other thing. Even carfilzomib is up to 56 milligrams now. Do we back it back down for maintenance? Do you, what would your clinical perspective be? No, um, my my perspective is uh, first, the more is better if it's tolerated. So every time more is not tolerated, there is an excellent reason to go less. So this is number one. So, so dose-limiting toxicity would be your parameter. Example, 
You see, for us, uh, we do rechallenge uh, in continuous treatment if we have at least 1,000 or 1,500 neutrophils and at least 75, 80,000 blood. So if you start not having those parameters for us, uh, this is a good reason to stop, wait to reach those levels and restart at the lower dose because, of course, if you had to stop is because the previous dose was not very well taken. So this is uh, rule number one. Uh, as a rule number two, I would use uh, certainly no more than a weekly bortezomib, especially in a continuous approach. And our trial did honestly use uh, bortezomib every two weeks. So our bortezomib inhibitor was much lower when we gave it as a continuous treatment. Carfizomib could be given more frequently because it has less hematologic toxicity and less neuropathy. But still, rule number one is if tolerated. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you for your question. Okay, we'll go to caller at 305-7339. Go ahead with your question. Yes, hi, uh, my name is Victor, and I've noticed that clinical trials basically seem to be for relapsed refractory patients, and I'm wondering whether it's possible to design any trials to try some of the newer drugs that are not approved yet, like some of the uh, monoclonal antibodies, for example, for people who are on maintenance, has has thought been given to that, or would that basically just not not work because you don't you wouldn't really be able to tell anything? No, actually, uh, what is ongoing is probably not so you know in the public domain. But what is ongoing now are plenty, all new drugs, including monoclonal antibodies, are testing uh, the maintenance phase. So basically, uh, you are right. Uh, in, in the de- developing of a, of a drug, first uh, you test the drug in relapse refractory and then you move to newly diagnosed patient. And at that point, you, uh, at the same time of with a different study, you address the question of maintenance. So the majority of uh, maintenance questions are uh, in uh, newly diagnosed patient uh, uh, and in treatment uh, uh, administered to those patients. Okay, but well, yeah, I guess so my concern is that for someone who is on maintenance now, there don't seem to be any clinical trials available. You can't just sign up for one if you're already in a maintenance position. If you are already in a maintenance, no, in the sense that uh, a clinical trial can be, uh, you know, delivered it at the beginning of the maintenance. If you already start the maintenance. Uh, uh, there is no clinical trial that will uh, allow the inclusion of, of a person who already started maintenance because, of course, it would be difficult to evaluate the efficacy at this point. Uh, 
-hmm. But on the other hand, I would also suggest you, if you are under a given maintenance, keep going. Don't mix that. The moment uh, you see, when you start the treatment, the moment you make a decision, it's over. Don't change uh, in the middle of the way. Yeah, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you for your question, Victor. I appreciate it. Okay, we have another question at 9851296. Go ahead with your question. Hello, am I live? Yep, you're live. Oh, I did have a question with um, the maintenance of Revlimid. Um, does doctor suggest that dexamethasone is also a component in that regimen? Uh, you're asking me if I, if I wish to add dexamethasone, yes or no. Um, there is uh, some evidence, uh, they are not very strong, honestly, because uh, that the addition of uh, corticosteroids might be useful. Uh, so you might add it. Uh, the studies as, uh, we have been running until now have been only study comparing uh, image or protosome inhibitor without dexamethasone versus control arm. So the study we do have, uh, uh, and the, 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 so the, the, the real strong evidence is without uh, corticosteroids. There are some studies that they are adding corticosteroids to uh, regulator. They are not uh, uh, they do not have enough uh, follow-up to make a final conclusion. Early signal might say that there is an advantage, so that's why I'm not so strong in saying yes or no, because I'm strong in saying yes for LEN maintenance, because we do have a strong evidence. For the addition of corticosteroids to LEN, we have some initial evidence. So my answer to you will be yes, provided corticosteroids is not creating any trouble to you, and probably even lower doses, 20, 10 to 20 milligrams of dexamethasone may be good enough. So yes, provided is not creating any, any trouble to you, knowing we have some early evidence, not strong evidence. Thank you very much, doctor. Thank you. Okay, we have our last caller at 949-5572. Go ahead with your question. <clears throat> hey, thank you very much for taking the call. It's been a great show today. Um, thank you. Uh, Dr. Paloma, you make a very compelling argument for a continuous uh, therapy approach. Um, a couple of questions around that. Um, what is a quality of life issue that would stop you from continuing the treatment? You, you mentioned that quality of life would be a significant factor. Um, how, how bad would the neuropathy had to be, have to be, or what would be that quality of life issue? You mentioned kidneys. Uh, what else would be those issues? I have, I have a couple other questions after that. Uh, well, I'm not going to detail because for me, as I usually say, uh, only grade one toxicity, you know, all toxicity has been graded, uh, they, 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 you know, 
are graded by one, two, three, four. So all we usually accept grade one toxicities, including fatigue. Uh, we do not accept more than that. So if you ask me, the the cutoff is grade one. That means minimal toxicities and. Uh, your uh, on the quality of your life, you will decide that, uh, at the end of the story because you might find, uh, you know, some minimal side effect very important, uh, and for me might not be the same. So, especially for quality of life, uh, you have to decide. My message to you is: you have to, you you must have a normal life. Every time you feel something is not acceptable for you. I will discuss in detail what this means, but the final decision is on you. Thank you. The, the second question has to do with just the cost of continuous therapy. You mentioned sometimes insurance companies won't cover the ideal treatment. Are the insurance companies going to go along with the concept of continuous therapy, or, or do you have any indication of this? Yeah. Uh, this is something that is outside. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm here in Europe, so it's a completely different situation. I think the majority of uh, companies covering the continuous uh, therapy uh, in the United States. in Europe, uh, is uh, still under discussion that the reimbursement should become uh, uh, soon. Um, what can I tell you? I, 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 I don't know. It should be covered, in my opinion, but uh, depending on the insurance, someone might not. Okay. Last, last week, the, the, last, the previous show was talking about the new heavy light test. Um, and uh, and that um, that test is is kind of like um, a speedometer for the growth rate of myeloma. Um, and I I believe it was Dr. Stephen Harding of the Binding Site that did that. Are you familiar with this test? And could could some of these tests be used in combination with this continuous therapy as a more sensitive indicator of of how the myeloma is or is not progressing? And maybe maybe the concept of a patient dashboard is kind of a radical idea, but as I've been listening to the shows, it's you know some of these ideas are coming together in terms of how we can help improve the quality of care. And this the idea of monitoring at a more sensitive level is, is a very exciting one to me. Uh, yes, I completely agree with you. Uh, we have testing several uh, new approach uh, that are more sensitive. Uh, but uh, from a practical point of view, uh, we do not have uh, any evidence on how to use it, for example, to stop the continuous treatment and eventually to restart, or when to increase it, uh, uh, the dose intensity of the continuous treatment. So generally speaking, uh, uh, these are not the test uh, that we can use uh, today to make uh, treatment changes. So from this point of view, uh, I think they are still under investigation. They are more sensitive, but they are still under investigation. All right. Well, 
Um, thanks again. Great, uh, great insights today. I learned a lot. Well, thank you. Okay, Dr. Palumbo, we are out of time, and we could talk for another hour on your research. You've done Did so you much have with. Another couple of questions <laughs> coming to me, Well, I have I limited the time on the caller questions, so we could end okay. on time. Okay. So okay. I I okay. apologize. I have quite a few questions about your treatment in the elderly and risk stratification. So maybe I'll I'll end with one during the International Myeloma Working Group. Um, that that was videotaped by the IMF. You mentioned that it was needed to separate patients into more homogenous groups in order to risk stratify them and treat them differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, are there any other steps that need to be taken to treat patients more specifically? Well, no. You see, uh, I think there is a message, but is uh, I think will come. Uh, basically, you know, myeloma is at the end of the day a mix of three different diseases. The real high risk, that is a disease completely different uh, from the, the standard risk and the uh, uh, low risk of patients. So I think uh, there are today the tools to differentiate those uh, uh, three different groups that to some extent may represent the three different diseases. And what is needed in the future, but might become more complicated for an, the need of numbers, because numbers become, of course, smaller at that point, to have studies uh, uh, evaluating the high-risk patients, the standard-risk patients, and low-risk patients separately. Today we have been uh, made the mistake, if I can, but, you know, to pull everyone together, and they starting to say this must be better than the other, maybe comparing high risk versus standard risk. Tomorrow, I think the future will be to, to start a design trial only for the high risk and trial only for the standard risk. Oh, well, I completely support that. Then you're comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. And then you don't know what, yes. yeah, don't know what kind of result you're getting. So I think in the future we are going there, but uh, it, it, you know, once again, it's a rare disease, so the, the, the issue is mainly related to the rarity of the disease. Okay. Well, if you have time, I'll add one more emailed-in question from Jill, and she just asked, I noticed that in your studies you are moving away from melphalan to cyclophosphamide. Um, is there a reason for this, like a less risk of secondary cancers? Can you describe the rationale? Uh, certainly, yes. I would say that um, the number one issue uh, of methanol is the risk of uh, second cancer. So cyclophosphamide has a much lower risk of second cancer. So number one reason to move from methanol to the cyclophosphamide is the lower risk of cancer. The second reason is uh, to, uh, there is less hematologic toxicity with cyclophosphamide, and this is another important consideration because at the end of the day, if you use methanol extensively and the blood count is going down significantly, then there is uh, difficulties, uh, there are difficulties in the liver salvage treatment. And this is probably more even important of second cancer. Second cancer is, uh, 
fortunately a rare event. The risk of thrombocytopenia after significant delivery of especially oral mefalan, much less uh, high dose mefalan because it's a shot uh, uh, given once. Uh, with the oral mefalan, but also if you want with the high dose mefalan, the risk of thrombocytopenia may hamper uh, the deliver of uh, effective service treatment. And this is, in my opinion, a good reason uh, to move uh, to a better tolerated compounds such as cyclophosphamide. Well, that's very, very interesting. Is cyclophosphamide powerful enough to use it pre-transplant? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, to some extent, uh, you know, in the combination with bortezomib, today we have uh, two major combinations, I would say bortezomib plus lenalidomide and bortezomib plus cyclophosphamide. Of course, uh, the first one is uh, uh, slightly more active, uh, certainly more expensive, and the second one is uh, slightly more active than the combination bortezomib and dexamethasone. Okay, well, that's very, very interesting. And I think we'll see more on that later. Well, Dr. Palumbo, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so very grateful for your leadership in myeloma and your research to move the field forward as quickly as possible. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, you've been delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us for our next inpatient radio interview as we learn more about how we as patients can help drive to a cure for myeloma by joining clinical trials. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.